This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, July 13th, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein, and as always, since it is Thursday, we have my partner in our new Invest Talk Sector Spotlight series. We have Luke Guerrero back with us. Hello, Justin. Yeah, and uh, you actually named Sector Spotlight as well. I know you love the alliteration. Big alliteration guy. Big alliteration guy, yeah. So we're. We're big on alliteration and we're big on educating you and helping you become a better investor. So the, our main goal is to help you make the most of your capital and your time. We all have limited amounts of capital, limited amounts of time. So it's about reducing the counterproductive habits that, that get the best of all of us at some point or another. So you want to limit things like letting emotions influence your thought process, chasing headlines, to justify your your decision making and chasing returns and such and there's an old saying you know that you can you can chase returns but you'll never catch them and we found that to be to be very true so hopefully we help you learn some lessons the easy way as opposed to the hard way and today as always we'll be providing our unbiased guidance and perspective and invest talk is all about helping you take that next step in your quest your quest to achieving your own version of financial freedom works looks different for everybody, but the principles to get there for uh, everybody is are pretty much the same. And so, to that end, the podcast is your opportunity to submit your finance and investment questions that will keep us on task and help us direct our thoughts and our perspectives to helping your portfolio and your decision making process. So let's get started. We're ready to tackle your questions, and if you have one, give the Invest Talk phone lines a call. They never close at 888-99-CHART. Now, our focus point today looks in the story behind this headline. Amid supply concerns, demand for lithium and other critical minerals are skyrocketing, and the market size for minerals crucial for energy transition hit $320 billion last year. That's a doubling over the past five years. So we're going to look at the amount of money that's been raised last year and how investors may think about taking advantage of this trend, if at all. So we're going to look at that. We also have some other topics to discuss. One is in regards to AI chips. And we all know NVIDIA has a strong market share in this space, but it's early on. And we're going to talk about some of the other players that are itching to steal some market share. And if they do, you know, they could get a, a big boost. So we're going to look at that. Also, Chinese trade data has come in and it's not looking so hot and it means a lot for their country and the rest of the global economy. And it's telling some some interesting trends. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the ruling in regards to the XRP token. And I think that will be interesting for the evolving crypto landscape and what that might mean for the space as a whole. 
We also have some voice bank questions. One is in regards to the yield curve and the other on Spire SR. And if we have time, some iTunes review questions as well. So we have this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk. So we're taking your live calls right now at 888 chart Now the market today continue continually bullish, right? Right, Luke, we just uh, continue to grind higher on the back of inflation data that definitely I would definitely surprise the downside, which we know is is bullish, and uh, it means that the Fed doesn't have to be quite as hawkish. And what was interesting today is growth definitely had a, a big upturn. You had some big gainers in the market. Coinbase was up twenty four percent. What else? Marathon Digital up fourteen percent. MicroStrategy, a lot of the the, the crypto adjacent companies uh, were up as well. Do you, does, is this maybe the last? hurrah for this space before a potential weakness? Yeah, you know, it certainly looks like it. A lot of this is on the back of initial jobless claims being less than what the consensus expectation was, CPI and PPI, like you mentioned. But when you see names within the small and particularly growth side of the market doing well, doing better than the rest of the market, driving performance, what really is going on there is you think about it, those are the names that tend to be the newer companies, the unicorn companies, the ones that are not as profitable. Um, and those tend to be the ones that are pumped the most, if you will, right before the break. Yeah, it's it, when there's not a lot of confidence within a particular part of the market, which going into this year, obviously the growth side, there wasn't. The better names are the ones that most investors pivot to first, the ones that, like you said, are profitable. And then near the end of that move, you typically get the final capitulation into the names that aren't profitable. And so that's kind of what you're getting. And you get, and a lot of those, those, those uh, equities are very volatile. So they don't, have two or three percent moves, they have eight, 10, 12, 15 percent moves often. Uh, and so that was an interesting uh, little little move here. I mean, the, the broad market was 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 strong. You had small caps up, up about three quarters of a percent. Large caps are up about 90 basis points. So uh, large caps did outperform just a bit today. But as of late, small caps have uh, started to outperform. Uh, I think we still potentially have some more upside, Luke, in the market in the near term. But as we enter the back half of the year, I think the economic weakness uh, may start catching up with the market just a bit. Now, does that mean we go into a 20, 30% down uh, market? Uh, I don't know if we, I would say that, but you know, a, a modest pullback in the second half of the year is probably likely, right? Yeah, I think especially given what we're going to be talking about later, which is the demand coming out of China. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that was the market today, and we're going to pivot over to our first listener question now. Hi, Justin or Steve. Uh, hopefully you can take a look at a company a digital ocean, ticker symbol, D-O-C-N. Currently have a lot of energy and commodity value in my portfolio. So looking at this one, there's a little interesting to pick up some tech. It is a software infrastructure company, so I figured it's a little bit of both. Um, I was hoping you could take a look and let me know the valuation. If you think it's too early or too late to get in, I'd love to know your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. All right. This is DigitalOcean. This is a cloud-based on-demand infrastructure and platform for productivity and accelerating innovation. So their earnings continue to go up uh, about 82% expected this year, 33% next year. Gro sales growth is about 30% last quarter, which is the slowest growth pretty much over the past eight quarters. And a year ago, they're averaging closer to 40%, high 30s. So you're seeing a bit of a, a growth slowdown, but it has come off dramatically uh, from its all-time high around $130 per share. Hit a low, 52-week low was at $23 and change. Now we're at 49. So it's had a, a pretty big run. Luke, this is a name. This is a tech name that at least it's profitable. 
And if you look at its cash flow, it's, it's also uh, positive. But if you look at its profitability metrics, turn assets, turn equity, uh, that remains negative. Uh, but they don't have much debt on, on their balance sheet. Do, do you think it's still cheap enough even after this uh, double over the last six months? Uh, I mean, the valuation metrics are a little high. I'm, kind of, I'm looking at their net debt, and it looks like their net debt is actually positive $1 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a pretty substantial amount of debt, actually, relative to the size of the company. Uh, it looks like it grew in the past two years, the debt levels from $260 million all the way to $1.6 billion. Yeah, and that looks like what they're doing is they're buying back shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Is uh, Most of these tech names, they're the opposite, right? They're serial issuers of shares. But the amount of shares outstanding has gone from $109 million in in the fall of 2021 to $88 million today. So. Are they leveraging up their balance sheet to buy back shares? It seems pretty questionable in a time of rising rates and cheap money being gone. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously in a growth phase. So could they use that money to uh, buy back to grow their company even more? Maybe, uh, but uh, you know, I do think this is technically it looks fine. It's in an uptrend. Uh, let's just pull this up here. It's in an uptrend, and it is a bit overbought near term. I just don't think that this is cheap enough anymore uh down at 20 you know there was some discussion of that you know whether it was uh it was cheap enough but i think at 50 trading at what's the uh, price sales here about eight times i still think that's a bit too expensive so i would wait for uh, a larger pullback maybe get back into the high 20s then it may be interesting again but not here in the high 40s all right Thanks for the call. Now, as we head to a break, let me tell you about the new video feature we are producing. It's called the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. It is free to view right over at on our YouTube channel. The first episode talks about the technology sector and its rapid innovation. Talk about AI, blockchain, cloud computing, as well as software as a service. The Invest Talk Sector Spotlight you can find now on YouTube. Just type in Invest Talk. Now, the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at eight 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 ninety nine chart. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24-7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Adrian from Texas, and I'm calling about Fire Incorporated, ticker number SR. It's trading at $62 right now, and I wanted to see if you think that's a fair price, if you think it's a little uh, high or you think it's a little cheap, and uh, what's a good price point to enter. Thank you so much. All right, this is Spire Incorporated, and this is a utility. It's a natural gas utility. 
serving about 1.2 million customers in Missouri and Alabama, $3.5 billion market cap. So definitely on the, one of the smaller names within the utility space. Revenues and earnings are starting to reaccelerate after dipping in the back half of last year. But earnings this year are supposed to be up 10%, and those analysts are upgrading those earnings as of late, and another 2% next year. 4.5% dividend yield. And return on equity right around 10%, which is slightly above the longer-term average, but it's uh, it's kind of stays in that high single digits, low uh, teen range for profitability on the return equity, which is solid for a utility. But utilities are obviously not you know super exciting. They do have a good amount of debt on their balance sheet. What do you think, Luke? I mean, is this an attractive utility uh, being so small and, and having so much debt? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I think when I think about utilities, I tend to think of them more defensively. Mm-hmm. And you have to, to have to realize that a lot of the ways in which you look at normal companies don't really apply to most utilities because mm-hmm. a lot of them are highly regulated, yeah. which means their business model is different from a traditional businesses, business model, right? So typically when you're thinking about utilities, like I said, defensively, I tend to go towards the bigger ones, the ones with longer histories, the ones with little debt, the ones who are, who have consistent performance. Yeah. Uh, utilities, a lot of people are attracted to them because of the yield, but they don't have the upside like most, most equities, because like you said, they're regulated. They can only have a certain level of profitability and that doesn't give them much upside for a growth of those earnings. It's really about, you know, how many customers they're serving. And a lot of times they don't have a lot of control over that, whether or not people are moving in or out of their, their region. And so that's why I don't love utilities. I'm rarely overweight utilities in, in our strategies. So uh, I, I think this is definitely cheaper compared to what it typically trades at when you're looking at, you know, enterprise value to, to EBIT and things like that. But yeah, you, you, like you said, Luke, you want something that's maybe a bit safer, and, and there's a lot of uh, companies that are bigger, more well-diversified, have less debt compared to their, their cash flow and their earnings, and have the ability probably to raise their dividend a lot more. So uh, I would look for a bigger name within the space. All right, let's go to Robert in Pleasanton. He wants to talk about NTAP, which is NetApp. Yes, hey, uh, good NetApp. afternoon, gentlemen. And, yeah, good how afternoon. are you doing? Doing okay. How are you? Doing great. You uh, do you own NetApp, or are you looking to buy it? I am considering purchasing it. I'd like to get your opinion. It looks like uh, a pretty pretty strong stock as far as uh, relatively low PE for a tech stock. Actually, pays a small dividend. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Well, I think it has a low PE because it has low growth. Right, you a year ago you had growth, sales growth in the low teens. Now the last two quarters has been negative six percent this last quarter and five percent the quarter before. Earnings are supposed to be down twenty two percent this year and back up five four percent next year. So, you know most growth most tech stocks have high multiples because they have above average growth, and this is a name that just has fairly meager growth uh, longer term and at least especially near term. Uh, Luke, do you, do you think, though, the fact that it is not trading at high multiples uh, it makes it still it makes it attractive now? I think what attracts me about this is, I mean, there have been some earnings upgrades recently. Their net debt is actually negative, and although their profit, or while their profitability is going up, their cash flow has remained relatively stable in a, in a stable range. So it's certainly something I would like to look into a little bit more. Yeah, and their and their uh, dividend payout ratio is, is relatively low, so I think there's room for uh, 
that to improve the dividend to go up. So, you know, understand that it's cheap kind of for a reason, um, but I think it is cheap enough and I like the chart. So I'm going to give NTAP a, a, a thumbs up. All right, we're heading to a break. So give us a call at 888-99-CHART. You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, our focus point today looks into the story behind this headline. Amid supply concerns, demand for lithium and other critical minerals are skyrocketing, and the market size for mineral Minerals crucial to the energy transition hit $320 billion last year. And this is uh, from a new report uh, from the what was it from the International Energy Agency, the, I- the IEA. I always get that mixed up. And what they saw is between 2017 and last year, saw a tripling in overall demand for lithium, 70% jump in demand for cobalt, and 40% rise in demand for nickel. And they see investment in the development of critical minerals increasing by 30% in 2022 after being up 20% in 2021. So clearly, Luke, there is a large trend here in companies of all shapes and sizes trying to gear up, I guess you could say, for the energy transition. And the big question that I think the IEA is trying to answer is, will there be enough? It's a great question. Um, you know, that's something you and I talk about a lot. I think the primary issue here in terms of the supply chain for these types of batteries is that these materials are difficult to get and they're not in the same place. Mm-hmm. And that makes it tough. China, for example, who leads extraction of graphite and rare earths and processing of lithium, according to the IEA, has to rely on the Democratic Republic of Congo for mined cobalt. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I see situations like this, I think, okay. The way the market typically works is when there's demand, people tend to try and find the cheapest way to construct something to fit that, to Mm -hmm. build supply. And so far, this doesn't seem to be fitting the bill for me in terms of transitioning the auto fleet into electric vehicles. And what's uh, interesting about this is not just getting the minerals out of the ground, but it's also refining those minerals as well. Because... You can't just take something out of the ground and think it's ready for use in a battery, right? So it's it's something that where China has been a big driver of the refining of those uh, those minerals because it goes directly into a lot of those uh, those cars or whatever material uh, to push the green revolution uh, they're they're trying to build, um, but also in uh, places like. Um, in Germany, right? Germany was, uh, they did very well with their industrial uh, base because they had cheap natural gas. Now that's kind of shifting as well. So uh, I think companies and countries around the world are trying to reimagine their supply chains that probably don't include China, right? Yeah, no, I think that's that's certainly something that, that we've seen over the past year, two years, uh, really year and a half at this point, is that if you have an adversarial relationship with a country and it boils over, uh, it can be a big problem, mm-hmm. right? So Europe had an energy crisis because they had an adversarial country with their largest natural gas supplier. So um, I think that's something that, that the U.S. has to be conscious of as well. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is that some of the large car makers are investing big in this area as well. Volkswagen and Stellantis, who uh, it's basically, was that the old uh, Fiat? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fiat. Uh, They're both coming together, both committing $100 million for a SPAC to invest in nickel and copper production in two mines in Brazil that are run on hydropower. And... So this SPAC, along with uh, metals giant Glencore, uh, they're also putting $100 million in. And this is what they're trying to do is take advantage of subsidies. They're also trying to build uh, the processing facilities in, in Western Europe and here in North America that will qualify for the subsidies that uh, both Europe and the U.S. have rolled out. So uh, clearly this is kind of one of those agreements that are coming from efforts on both sides, both in the public and private space. I think that's what's going to be needed here because it's a it's a massive endeavor to basically rejigger your entire supply chain, not just from one country to another, but one complete type of uh, vehicle to another that we haven't produced really in on a massive scale, right? Uh, you're still, I think, we're still in single digits of EVs as a percentage of global car sales, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think a lot of this is is was spirited by again the free money of the past. You have a company like Rivian, for example, who learned the hard way that it's difficult to make cars and it's difficult to create supply chains out of thin air. And the end result is they built half the cars they thought they were going to. Mm-hmm. So this is certainly a problem that if it's going to be solved uh, the way. Uh, companies currently want. It's going to involve a lot of coordination. But again, I'm on the side that when you have supply issues like this, if there's enough demand for a product, you just got to innovate your way out of it, which is what you're seeing with some companies researching lithium sulfur batteries, for example. Yeah, that's the other side of this is, yes, you could really ramp up your your production of a particular mineral, but that's for the material that is needed for the technology of today. And like you said, that could be a different technology three years, five years, 10 years from now. So I think that's why it's difficult for a lot of these companies to put so much in CapEx when the technology could simply change. And now you spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars developing the supply for uh, this particular current technology. And that could be completely obsolete uh, you know, down the line. And so that's why I think it is crucial for governments to kind of have, be in partnership to take some of that risk off the table. All right, on the next Invest Talk, we will look into the story behind this question. Do you make critical investing mistakes? If a knowledgeable observer trained their sights on your choices, they might find some trouble spots. We will look into that topic tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and I'm ready to take your questions live at 888 chart eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Let's head over to Las Vegas and talk to Gene. And, Gene, how's the sphere out there? I heard it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's it's it, it's it, it lights up the uh, the city. That's for sure. I yeah, hear I there's a lot of complaints about the people that live close to it. So yeah, it's, oh, it's, I would it's imagine bright. looking at your uh, your window yeah. when you wake up and you see this giant ball is displaying something very random. Yeah, I, I would I would imagine. Thank goodness I'm way off the strip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, you want to talk about one main holdings incorporated OMF or do you own it? Or are you looking to buy it? You know, I, I I do own it. Um, I got into a half position of it back in February when we had the pullback in the banking sector. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, it, it looked real attractive. The dividend is pretty nice. And I want to add to it, but I'm, I'm up about 25% right now. Um, and with fears of the recession coming in Q4 and possibly Q1, in 2024, I was just calling to see if you guys would recommend adding that position now or kind of just waiting and riding it out and take that dividend. Well, for everyone else, this is one main holdings and it's engaged in non-prime consumer financing here in the U.S. and it's basically installment lending to those with low credit scores. And that means they earn a high return when the economy's good and unemployment's pretty low. And that's why their earnings continues to kind of grind up. Uh, it's supposed to make, let's see, $6.15 this year. That is down 12% from last year's $7 per share. But analysts are upgrading uh, those earnings expectations. It does yield about 8.6%. But once again, this is operating in the, the non-bank financial finance sector, uh, which is a, a large part of uh, financing here in the U.S. I believe uh, only 30% of debt, uh, consumer debt, is on bank balance sheets, which is much lower than uh, most other uh, developed economies. So this is the type of name that uh, has a large share of that. Uh, it's been rallying because I think the jobs market has stayed together. But Luke, what happens if we do actually go into recession, maybe the very end of, of this year, early next year, this is probably a name that's uh, going to roll over, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of risk there. I think the reason you've been seeing some earnings upgrades is because the fear of a mild or you know, rather moderate or deep recession is abating a little bit. People are seeing a soft landing scenario possibility, but still there's a lot of risk here because typically uh, the people with low credit scores are the people who can't pay back their loans first. Um, so, you know, being up 25%, I think that's a, a good reason to maybe pare back a little bit. I certainly wouldn't be looking to invest anymore right now, especially given the recent run-up in the past three, four months. Yeah, and, and that, uh, 
the, the valuation probably just doesn't justify, I think, adding to it at this point. And I think I wouldn't be super quick to sell it because the technicals are perfectly fine. But once you start getting into a credit event, because eventually there will be a credit event. And in the spring, you had the, it wasn't really a credit event, it was, event, it was more like a duration event, right? A credit event is more when defaults become more widespread. And for them, it's going to be unemployment. And the unemployment uh, market is weakening a bit, but still not dramatically. And so, but, but I think we're in that trajectory towards uh, a, a job market that is solid right now, but probably headed more towards weakness rather than strength over the next six to 12 months. So I would be looking for areas to, to trim. Now I will say the next resistance is coming up here right around 47, $48, a little bit higher than here. Uh, and the major resistance would be up around 54 on a technical basis. So those would be the areas that I might start uh, trimming your position. Thanks for the call. Now let's handle two questions in a row. This one came in earlier from the UK on 888.99 chart. Hi, Stephen, Justin, it's Alex from the UK. Thank you for the podcast. Um, I have a question about oil stocks, uh, in particular oil service stocks. Um, with the recent pullback in the energy sector um, underperforming at the start of the year, I was wondering whether you guys thought now would be a good time to get into some more of the oil stocks. Um, in particular, the oil service stocks, I have small positions in SLB, Slumberjays, um, RPC, um, Res Inc, um, obviously one much larger than the other. I was wondering whether you think it is a good idea to potentially add to these positions on pullbacks. I know um, SLB has been um, moving up more recently. I did manage to pick some up um, at its recent pullback. And yeah, would love your thoughts on the sector and those two um, stocks. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. I like your thinking that uh, trying to add to oil names now that uh, you've had kind of gone through this consolidation period. We look to be breaking out to the upside. And, but Schlumberger, uh, one of the largest oil service companies, we actually own this for, uh, for clients in one of our strategies. We own it for a while. It is approaching 52-week highs up here around 57 and change. So we really like Schlumberger. I think, Luke, the question is, if you're trying to add to oil, will... Is, is, are, the, are the service stocks the better place to be, or do you think you would pivot towards EMPs? I think diversification is good in this, in, this, in this instance. I think this is also these service companies are probably ones that are going to benefit a lot from the uh, impending artificial intelligence Armageddon that everybody tells us we're heading towards. Um, I think that these types of companies are, are an excellent place to look to add, and I love the theme of, of energy. Yeah, I, we love the theme of energy as well, uh, and I think you're, it's really about risk here. EMPs, their earnings are much more volatile than the service service uh, companies. As the servicers, as long as the oil uh, is flowing and, and the, the rigs are, are pumping, they're probably working on them and, and servicing them, as, as their name uh, typically implies. Uh, whereas... Oil companies, their profits tend to ebb and flow, I guess pun intended <laughs> there, uh, when uh, in, a, in a lot bigger magnitude each way when oil prices move. So if you're really bullish on oil, I think it's fine to have some, some, some service companies, but I would probably pivot more towards the EMP, but it depends on your risk profile, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but of those two names you spoke about, obviously Slumberger is the one we like probably the most. Now let's... Uh, 
Let's head over to the AI discussion. And we all know that NVIDIA has been the darling as of late, but there are a lot of rival firms looking to close the gap on their, their market share. Now, they control more than 80% of the AI uh, chip business, but companies like AMD, Intel, they've been longtime competitors and they have their own line of AI chips and they're actually winning more and more, uh, more and more contracts because NVIDIA chips are just expensive. So do you think that the others can catch up, Luke? No. No? No, I don't. I think that uh, generally speaking, when you look in the tech space, it's a winner-take-all environment. Um, if you want an example of that, think of the 93% of people that use Google search or go and try and find somebody in Laguna Beach who has a Zune. Um, I think that it is very hard to dethrone a king uh, within this space, and NVIDIA is going to be difficult as well. Well, I use the analogy kind of more like the iPhone and Android here. Why? Because uh, the NVIDIA platform is, they, they own the, the software, mm -hmm. they control the software. Mm -hmm. Whereas AMD and Intel, they have more of an open source uh, software, which allows, uh, which allows them to, you know, mess with the software and, and get a little more creative with, uh, with their platform. So I think that's maybe the bigger, bigger question here is, as more and more people educate themselves on AI, gain some knowledge of the space, gain some skills to take advantage of that open source platform, maybe they'll be, or one of them, or maybe both of them, will be the chosen open source platform and the Android of the space, whereas maybe NVIDIA just kind of holds on to a high market share uh, because it's more of a plug and play, easy to use type of uh, software environment. And I think that's, that's the way I see it working out. No? Yeah, no, that, that's entirely possible. I just think that it's, it's very difficult in this kind of tech environment to catch up in a field that is, frankly, exponentially getting more complicated. Yes, it, it is getting more complicated. And I think that's probably, and that, that kind of backs up my point, though, right? It's so complicated right now that they, these, these companies rather go with a plug-and-play model, which is NVIDIA, as opposed to one where they can maybe build some tools that uh, are not part of that plug-and-play model, that are more unique and, and, and uh, can do different things. And so you, you're already seeing that where, uh, what was it, Amazon Web Services had... Uh, was uh, used for companies like uh, Airbnb, ByteDance, Snap. Uh, they're looking at Amazon as an alternative in their AI uh, platform. And so it's not just the Intels and the AMDs, it's also the Amazons of the world and the Googles that are, that are trying to get into this as well. Deep pockets. So Very deep pockets. Very deep pockets. And, and guess what? I know uh, NVIDIA is worth a trillion dollars, but uh, Amazon and Google are worth multiples of trillions. This is true. Right. So Google you know, Plus worked really well. Yeah. Google Plus. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes my point is, is that sometimes when companies, even if they have deep pockets, try and transition into something that they're not familiar with, it doesn't necessarily go as well. Think Facebook with the metaverse. Think Google with trying to dethrone Twitter with Google Plus. It, it becomes a little complicated. So these, comp these companies like NVIDIA, who their entire purpose is to do this and they've been successful, whether or not we believe their valuations are correct, uh, which... Still, I think a little high. I think it's it's difficult to dethrone these guys. Yeah, well, I mean, Nvidia is, you know, their their roots are in graphic processing, mm -hmm. but so is AMD. Yeah, 
right? So maybe AMD is best equipped. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Um, but I know Intel has been pushing on the the graphics side as well. So maybe you know they could be a good leader as well. Now they have uh, competent uh, leadership once again, hopefully. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how how this evolves. Now let's swing back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a fresh question from a listener in Minnesota. Hi, Steve and Justin. Hope you're having a good day. Long-time caller here. This is Matt in Minnesota. I have a question for you, gentlemen, please, if you could help me out with it. I only have um, eight shares left in my O'Reilly holdings that I have. The stock has done well for me over the last year and so forth, but I feel with eight shares it's not enough to really have much significant growth in the stock any longer. Even though the stock is growing, I'm only gaining $8 for every dollar it grows, you know. So anyways, I'm looking at liquidating the stock, and one um, fund I'm looking at is something I believe I heard you gentlemen mention a few weeks ago. The ticker symbol is XLF, a financial fund. Do you guys feel that would still be a good place to move money into? Are finances still a good investment at this time to have money into for a long-term hold? Is that a good way to diversify my portfolio? Or would I be better off if I look for a fund that's more into real estate or even an international fund that trades in all international markets? Thank you for listening to my question. Look forward to hearing your response on the show. Have a good day. This is an interesting one. Uh, Basically saying the financial sector, real estate, or international they all have their, their risk, risk reward, just like everything. Uh, now, financials in general, let's, let's talk about that first. Uh, obviously, with the banking crisis, there are some challenges with uh, these higher interest rates and the duration risk that many of them hold in their balance sheet. Uh, but if you're owning XLF, you do hold some banks. The second biggest holding is JP Morgan, but the biggest holding is actually Berkshire Hathaway. They qualify that as financial. Why? Because of Geico. Mm-hmm. Insurance. Yeah. And Visa is number three on this list. MasterCard, number four. Bank of America, number five. Now, of those five, Berkshire is the only one that gets me semi-excited, right? Uh, now, you can say that the consolidation within the space may help those larger names, but I think it kind of cuts both ways. If you get some sort of redux of the banking crisis, yes, the large ones aren't going to be hurt as much, but they're still going to be hurt, right, Luke? So do you think XLF, with its diversity, is better than maybe real estate or international? Listen, I think I think if your goal is to get exposure to safer U.S. financial institutions, XLF is a good way to do it. It's a fund that is a net expense ratio of 10 basis points. It only invests in S&P 500 financial institutions, so it ignores all those small, small caps and those regional banks mostly that were getting hit. Um, so I think this is this is generally a good way to go about it, this type of strategy, if you're wanting to stay away from the riskier plays in a time where there still is some uncertainty around interest rates. Yes, uh, and you're, but you're also pigeonholing yourself, pigeonholing yourself into one sector of the market. Whereas an international fund, you're going to get a lot more diversity there. And if you think the dollar is going to weaken, 
that might be uh, a good, which I do think the dollar is going to weaken and starting to weaken in a big way over the past week. Uh, I think that might be uh, honestly a better way to go, get more diversity. And a lot of those names are a lot cheaper than, than our markets. Oh, no, certainly. I was saying if you're looking for U.S. financial institution exposure, yeah. this is an excellent way to do it. But yeah. certainly there's a lot more that goes into how you should allocate your money. Yeah. Um, I think it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one comparison to go real estate versus it's, versus international. There's yeah, a lot of different yeah. reasons why. I, I, that's the hard thing. You know, it's, you're comparing apples to oranges to cherries yeah, at this point. So uh, you know, within the, the market, are financials great? I would put them kind of middle of the road of the 11 sectors of the S&P. Uh, I would rather go much much go more go into industrials, for example. That's uh, an area that, you know, the XLI, which is kind of the sister cousin of the XLF uh, in the industrial space. Um, but, you know, if I'm picking something that I'm trying to pivot a portfolio into and don't understand the rest of the portfolio to really balance it out, I think the international is probably the way I would go over the XLF. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you have a question, get it in right now at 888-99-SHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, when people take the time to leave an InvestTalk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. The Puma 51 says, hey, guys, from a five-year listener, this may be something you can't answer completely, but perhaps you can point me in the right direction. I live in New Hampshire. I'm thinking about buying land to build a multifamily dwelling. I plan to live there and also rent it out from time to time. While my father lives in the in-law side, what do you think? Well, this is... This is a question that, yes, you're correct. I could not completely answer it without a lot more information. Uh, I think this is a portfolio review uh, d discussion where we get on a call and, and talk about the various variables. But uh, let's go over them so that other people can kind of learn what, how to think about these decisions. Now, first off, you live in New Hampshire. I'm assuming you're buying the land in New Hampshire. What is the cost of this land? Is it expensive land? Is it far away from city centers? Uh, how far away is it from your work, you know, I think that's a, the lifestyle of, of doing this is, is probably number one for me, right? If you're living there to, to some degree, what lifestyle are you living? Are you okay with that? And I think that's most important for all uh, large purchases like land and, and building, building a property or just buying a house uh, in general. Uh, now, you plan to buy a, build a multifamily dwelling. Is that two units? Is that four units? Is that 20 units? Multifamily means a lot of things. So that's a big question. And then your in-laws, uh, Luke, you said, do you like your father? <laughs> do you want to live with your, your father-in-law? Uh, uh, so that's, that's a big question as well. So a lot of, a lot of aspects to be answered before I could, could say this, uh, but probably it's a good idea, but uh, I, would do, I would encourage you to head over to investtalk.com and fill out a portfolio review questionnaire, and we'll jump on a video conference and talk about it in more detail. All right, let's talk a bit about Chinese exports and they're falling in China and across Asia. Exports from Taiwan fell 
uh, exports from Vietnam fell 11%, and Chinese exports fell at their fastest annual pace in June since the pandemic. Okay. And this is mainly because Western countries, we're buying less electronics, we're improving our home a lot less, and we're not spending on physical goods. We bought a lot of those during the pandemic, and now we're eating out and we're traveling. And this is, this means the, I think a lot of this is reversion to the mean. It's pretty easy. I see this all the time where there's these rated change statistics, change statistics, and it's looking back one year. And I think especially in this environment, when you had such a, such an economy that was so skewed for the call it 18 to 24 months post pandemic, it's kind of hard to really get a good sense exactly what this means. Right, Luke? Yeah, I mean, also there's a little bit of this, which is uh, something my old economics professor said is that you can talk yourself into a recession, Yeah. right? You can talk about how there's going to be a mild, moderate, steep recession down the road to the point where consumers cut back spending and it becomes a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy. So I think a lot of what's going on here, like you mentioned, is just people think the economy is going to take a turn and people are just cutting back on spending. And because of that, and because we still do live in a global economy, though it is receding a little bit, um, that's going to affect uh, other countries other than just our own. And, uh, you know, global demand has an effect on individual economy. And most economies are heavily service-based. So especially ours, uh, about two thirds of our economy uh, to, to three quarters are just services. So yes, demand for physical goods ebbs and flows and, and is typically the most uh, cyclical part of, of our economy. Uh, this is a lot of this is reversion to the mean. Now, doesn't mean there isn't some message here because if you look at the value of goods shipped overseas from China, it fell 12% in June year over year. And uh, it was much worse. That was much worse than analysts were expecting, only a 9.2% fall. And China's exports to the US alone fell 24% year over year. EU sank 13%. US imports were 5.5% lower in the first five months of this year than the same period the previous year. Uh, so this is a trend that is uh, really worldwide. And uh, I think this is you're entering a, a period of overall global trade growth that is going to continue to slow. Uh, however, China's overall share of global goods exports was still 14.4%. Pre pandemic, it was 11 or it was 13%. And it was 11% back in 2012. So even though their, uh, their business is ebbing, it's still at elevated levels. All right. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program with Luke Guerrero and Steve and I. Thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can get anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review as well. Remember to follow Invest Talk on social and like and tag us. Helps everyone in the Invest Talk community. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. 
For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. 